Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kyle Wing, from EPAM Continuum. Before we hop in today, a quick note. If you're listening to this in the U.S., Election Day is right around the corner. Voting is actually underway in many states, and we're simply asking you to please, please get out and vote. Vote early, send in your mail-in ballot, do what you have to do, but please vote. Okay, let's get into the show. 2020 has been all about redefining normal. I can't count how many times I've heard the phrase, new normal. It is true, these times are decidedly unique, but it's possible that nothing before was ever normal. I'm using air quotes here, by the way. What many might have understood as normal was really far from it. Our guest today is here to help us interrogate what normal is, and more importantly, what it could be, through a lens we might not often consider, the built environment. Sarah Hendren is an artist, design researcher, writer, professor at Olin College of Engineering, and now author. She is co-founder of the Accessible Icon Project and leads the Adaptation and Ability Group, Hendren's work has been exhibited around the world and is in permanent collections at the MoMA and the Cooper Hewitt Museum. Hendren succinctly describes herself as a humanist in tech, but that seems much too modest. Her book, What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World, is available at your local bookshop today. It tells stories about the misfits between our bodies and the world, stories about agency, empowerment, self-determination, but also stories that make us wonder why these gaps between our bodies and the world exist. In a time where nothing is normal and everything is up for questioning, it is time we start rebuilding, restructuring, and rethinking these gaps. As a review in The New Yorker put it, as Hendren writes, disability reveals just how unfinished the world really is. Her gift, perhaps, is to see that as an invitation. Today, our producer, Ken Gordon, returns to the mic as interviewer. Listen as Hendren and he discuss the desired life, being extraordinarily human, and the connection between love and attention. So I'd like to begin um, by talking about uh, two ideas and the universal, universality of two ideas, disability and desire, right? You write that disability is not a fixed or permanent label that belongs only to some people. It arrives for each of us, which is a super you know, profound thing to say. And, and throughout the book, you're talking again and again about people um, designing and living a desirable life, right? Which yeah. reminded me of this, this concept that everyone in America, at least, is entitled to the pursuit of happiness. And both of these concepts are both like equally universal, but, but it's not necessarily accepted or understood that way. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, and I'm glad that you pointed to desire. I didn't know if you meant to say design, but I'm glad you pointed to desire because that's really actually the deeper yeah. um, you know, theme there. Absolutely. Yeah. In the first case of disability, right. I think I join a whole you know series of disability scholars and disabled people who've been saying for decades, our experience is a human experience. And that's something that I learned in the course of research. And that is just mm-hmm. to say nothing more and nothing less. It is quite simple and also, but not easy, right? It's, it is quite profound that to think seriously and to take seriously the idea that we begin our lives quite dependent on one another, right? As, as in early life. Sure. And we, throughout the course of our lives, we, we traffic in and out of experiences of, you know, short-term dependence or maybe even acute dependence. So people think of themselves as non-disabled if they're listening right now. Think though, again, about just the times that you've spent 
um, I, I get a couple of emails every year from people who are using crutches for six months. And the way that that changes the way you operate in the world and what you can do and what you can't do. But also bouts of uh, long-term depression. You know, um, folks are tend maybe not to think of all the things that can be organized under the category of disabling illness or of a mismatch between their bodies and the world. So at this, in the same bookended way, just the, the fact of aging alone means that our capacities change and the, the kinds of things that we can do in the world also change. And that the mismatch or the misfit, that's that's one definition of disability that Rosemary Garland Thompson from the the field of disability studies offers to all of us. The misfit, the square peg in a round hole, as she says, that runs both ways, meaning disability is not only a feature of our bodies in the sense that we are we we carry you know vulnerability in us just over the lifespan full stop but also that the built world through which we have to navigate in its very atomic and material structures makes some ways of moving around the world possible and others impossible or you know, quite full of friction. So what that means is that, you know, if, if you are uh, someone who's aging, you have to contend with a world built of stairs to say nothing of someone who's using a wheelchair, but we're all connected in that misfitting. And it just is a matter of when and to what degree and in which ecosystems of our families and our workplaces and so on. But that disability, we could think of it as universalizing and we could, we could sort of lament that fact, some of the, the capacities that we may lose or that we wish that we had. Or we can say, or, and we can say, that actually makes us human and it, it, it connects us to one another. So it returns us to one another, just needfulness, the, the needing of each other uh, throughout our lives. So I wanted the reader in the book to sort of see themselves no matter the state of their embodiment. And then this other, you know, idea of desire and a desirable life, that is the most foundational question of the book, which is to say, um, you know, what can a body do, but also what is a good life and what is what are the things that we should desire that we can do with our bodies and that we can do um, in the social worlds that we build? And so, you know, I think a lot of times people think of design as problem solving and just like, taking a use case and a challenge and sort of wielding a hammer to find its nail and to, and to fix it. But I've tried to open up um, the design that I've seen, especially among disabled people, where disabled people meet the built world, to see that what what we wish for is also the property and the the mandate of design. So, in other words, what's the world that we want to build? Okay, let's start there. What what does human thriving look like? What does a desirable life look like? And then let's build that one, not just the limited and narrow view of uh, problems to solve. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's the idea of desire uh, of design as as desire solving. You know, yeah, it's really and, and thinking that way. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that um, the idea of the misfit relationship to the world yeah. from Rosemary Garland Thompson. And I like your gloss on it, which you say is a disharmony that runs both ways, yeah. body to world and back, right? Yeah, yeah. And this kind of conversation uh, that occurs that's that sort of dialogic relationship that people's bodies have to the world. Yeah, that's right. And it, and I think about it, I thought about a lot of the phrases in your book, and it it seems like um, figures of speech matter a lot in changing people's perceptions and sort of goading them into action and and rethinking yeah. and doing stuff. Can yeah. you talk about figures of speech and yeah. the role that it plays in getting people to rethink the idea of disability? Yes, thank you for that question. I mean, it is 
you know, narratives, stories, and speech and representation, right? All those things matter when we're talking about trying to reach an audience that hasn't yet maybe uh, understood themselves to be part of a kind of broader political movement. So in this case, I am just trying to translate a lot of the work that's been done before me, the scholars, the disabled people doing design work themselves, um, ideas in disability kind of uh, in an academic sense that I was trying to translate by turns of phrase and choices of metaphors and, and most of all in stories. I was trying to bring that home to a reader who is not going to go seek out those academic sources. And for a reader who, again, might think of themselves as like, oh, well, disability is a an issue that maybe belongs to other people and maybe I should kind of care about it. And I'm trying to say, no, no, it's right in front of you. It's in it's in your life, right? It's it's in the stuff that you use in your kitchen every day. It's in yeah. the streets that you walk on. And it is in your concerns, you and your family and your loved ones and your communities. It's all there. Those are human concerns. And so I wanted, you know, stories above all are, we know this from psychology and the science of it, that we are hardwired for stories. Like we need stories, our own story to have coherence. That is part of our well-being. I mean, it's really in our biology. But we also then look in fiction and in nonfiction, we look at the stories of others to help us marshal resources and make choices when our lives change and when we come up against conflicts. And so I wanted stories above all to be at work in this book. And people, if they read it, will read about a man with one arm who is tasked with changing his newborn baby's diaper, but also um, a woman who becomes a quadruple amputee at age 60 and has to figure out how to rearrange her household around her. And um, a couple with a baby with a rare genetic uh, disorder who they have to think about, you know, building a chair that would be just right for him and, and dozens of others. And I wanted for people not to say, oh, who are these people who are so unlike me, but to do again, that work of stories of like, where am I located in this very narrative? And if I take on their point of view, what might I do differently? But also what you're talking about in ter- terms of phrase I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm working as a, an academic, but working in a kind of journalistic way to say, what's the most, what's the richest, most vivid, most friendly and approachable voice and language I could take for these really complicated ideas? Because if I choose the phrase that you can understand, will you come along with me on this incredible kind of um, rich resource of overlooked insight? You know, and I think that disability um, I've noticed as the mother of a person with Down syndrome who's now 14 and living alongside a number of family members with disabilities, that disability suffers a little bit from a kind of um, either a sentimentality or people need to go straight to kind of inspiration as though people with disabilities are there to make them feel grateful for what they have. Or the, the disability often gets made into an object lesson. And I wanted it much more to be um, right in your life and and lively and um, you know, unfinished and restless in all of its questions for us, because that's where the energy of connection comes from, I find. That is an awesome thing to hear, because my next question is about loneliness and community. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I took from your book is this idea that disability can be, it was surprisingly to me, could be a thoroughfare to community. That's you know, right. traditionally, it's been thought of as an isolating factor in people's lives, but you found so many people, so many situations, like the rolling quads or the students yeah. of Death Space or the residents of Sailing House, service warriors of Epic that proved otherwise. Yeah. Um, are you, were you thinking about how your book might create newer communities amongst your readers um, and how it might sort of inspire 
uh, new communal connections that didn't exist before people picked it up? Boy, I hope I hope that will be the case, right? That people will see themselves and see the richness of community there. I mean, this goes back to your your sort of positing that desire is there at the heart of the book and that desire is a big part of design, meaning I think, yeah, a lot of people would be um, surprised to hear that 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 disability actually creates community, that those conditions, not in spite of their those conditions, but because of those conditions, that people find one another, sometimes who are like themselves. So you referenced Deaf Space and Gallaudet University, which is an all-deaf campus and hard-of-hearing campus in Washington, D.C. It's been around for a long time, but people might be um, you know, surprised at some of the really rich cultural features of what it means to go to college with other people who are like yourself who are deaf. But I think the other thing is that, um, you know, community can be created if we are, I mean, Jane McAlevey, who's a labor organizer, talks about the difference between being mobilized by um, uh, the energy to act alongside people with whom you already agree and see yourself, you know, in their likeness, but being organized by an idea is actually finding common cause with people who are unlike yourself. Mm. And I'm hope, I hope that, that the book has an organizing kind of capacity in the sense that you say, Oh, I'm not like these other people, but I share the kind of desirable world that they're articulating. And I might actually find pathways to my own communities if and when again, my body changes. I mean, I certainly found that for myself. Um, that, you know, my life is full of people uh, who would call themselves disabled people, not just people with Down syndrome, but lots of people with all kinds of capacities. And that 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 has been part of a, my own desirable life that, that we would say um, is generally desirable, meaning I meet people unlike myself who show me the world in different ways all the time, right? Show me the, show me the world and what it could be, show me the world, the alternate world from my own. I mean, that that, that, that is that is, you know, human flourishing. That's, that's, that's rich community. That is surely what we want is connection. So I did want the book to bring together all these different scales of design, but mostly people at, at different moments. So people in their houses, people in their workplaces, people in long-term residences. Um, so that, yeah, the reader might see, oh yeah, I, I can imagine myself there too. Um, if things were a little bit different. Yeah, one of the things I, I picked up on the book, I felt really strongly, was the sense that uh, how much innovation and heroism and courage is required to sort of live these lives to, to find their uh, the way to that sort of desirable life. And it really is not, I, you know, I think a lot of people would never see that. And I think having all those styles, stories um, sort of piled on top of each other has a really cumulative effect, you know. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that because I, I just to push back a little bit on you know innovation and and heroism like I think that that is that's a really a really interesting moment right I think we think about Chris um, who again was born with one arm and who you know finds himself at the changing table with a newborn baby and has to change his diaper you know when I'm with Chris I experience that yes as as courageous and as um, inspiring. Why? Because I'm a two-handed person who just hasn't been able to imagine life with one hand. But yeah. I've spent actually a lot of time with Chris. And I know that what that has actually taught me is actually to see both, yes, the extraordinariness, but also the ordinariness of adaptation. And I think I'm hopeful that that's actually really the message of the book. And what I hear from disabled people all the time is actually not to be at, put in that abstract category of heroes and courageous and inspiring folks, but instead to be on the human plane, which is to say, 
you know, if your capacities change tomorrow, what we know is that the body is deeply adaptive and plastic. And, you know, if you were, I had a friend who lost an eye in a car accident in adulthood, right? And her brain did all the knitting together so that she sees in stereo through one eye. Our bodies would do that too. It's ordinary to be adaptive. It is also extraordinary, but insofar as being human is extraordinary. But I think letting Chris at the changing table, doing that adaptive work of creating a little prosthesis, just so folks, listeners will can picture it. He ended up, you know, not, he doesn't use a regular like universal prosthesis, no high tech cyborg arm, but instead he rigged up a very clever prosthesis for just for changing the diaper. And that is these, you know, felted cords and little loops that, that hold his baby's ankles so that he can suspend those ankles and then change the diaper with the other hand built for 10 bucks. Right. And you see that and think how clever, right. And how, how, you know, nimble and just in time. That is also true. But it's one of hundreds of things that Chris does. And it's hundreds of things that any of us would do were we were our bodies to change. Now, when people write to me, you know, again, every year and say, Oh, my God, I've broken my wrist. And how am I going to cook now? Right? Of course, we would be faced with that initially with that friction of like, I can't do this, I cannot do it. And yet, we would. The ordinariness of adaptation is that we would, over time, find a way to do that. And I think, to me, that's one of the most that's one of the most galvanizing features of being a body, which is to say, adaptation is the fundamental state. Right? That, that we're all doing that all the time. And I wanted people to see that in, you know, in Steve Sailing, who has advanced ALS. That's a hard diagnosis that a lot of people cannot picture surviving, and yet. Steve is also deeply adaptive and wedded to machines in a really elegant way, if people can see it as such, but often they don't, because they can only see diminishment, right? So instead of saying, how extraordinary, I'm going to be grateful, or how extraordinary, I'm going to be inspired, you could say, oh my goodness, I live there too. I'm on that, I'm on that same plane. I live in a body that has needs, that extends itself with tools, and that's also ordinarily adaptive. Yeah. Sure. I like it. Let me ask you about driving, disability and driving, because I kept waiting for the chapter on driving to come up. I didn't, I didn't huh. find it. Oh, that's so interesting. Thought, let's huh. talk through that. I mean, because we have been thinking a lot about sort of aging and, and um, how that gets in the way of one's ability to drive well and safely. And we've been thinking about even the, the, the difficulties that families have just talking about it. And, and so I was wondering, have you thought much about sort of how aging – um, changes the way one can get around uh, using a car and sort of and how how it how it that sort of interaction yeah works. and when you say you, people families have trouble talking about it it's all the stigma right that comes with like should you be driving anymore it feels like a yeah. question like are you now incompetent and therefore less of a human being right it's a worth question that's right. And uh, yeah. part of what we're looking at using sort of different um, technologies as ways to sort of keep people safer and um, on the road longer. Yeah. Know, and, and even really sort of monitoring how they're driving so they can understand objectively what's going on. And then when they have conversations with their families, there can be a sort of a non-emotional basis for talking about it. Yeah, right. And I think, yeah. you know, these are really important questions to engage part at the at the design and technology level like you're talking about. And a lot of times those technologies, right, are thinking about it's a, it's a broad notion of aging in place, right? So they're thinking about how do I preserve the kinds of autonomy that I have in adulthood, mm -hmm. even when if my eyesight is, uh, you know, sort of less acute or my hearing is um, 
less than it, than it used to be. And so you're thinking about, right, like what are the gradations of support that you could build in so that driving and so, so the driving, you know, remains a feature of life. So there's, so there's that, I think, um, I'm, I'm for those technologies in the sense that, you know, if they're providing for um, an extended, you know, um, rich life in older age, and, and certainly in our own country, mm-hmm. you know, old age is is a really underimagined moment of life, right? We tend to make it super passive and um, we tend to um, patronize older adults in a way that's yeah. pretty shameful, I think. Um, but there's a deeper conversation there, which is, I think, you know, at the heart of certainly any American conversations about aging. And that is about what does the car represent, right? And it's like, um, can we also then work on a different framing of a life that has some dependence in it, right? Because that's that when people are resisting drive, you know, giving up the keys to driving, they're resisting an idea that they have become more dependent. And and instead of thinking right. like, well, dependence is part of a desirable life, it's dependence always means loss, right? And that there again, disabled people have for a long time said, there's a way to be the the architect of your own life. There's a way to have agency. There's a way to have choice. There's a way to have, you know, self-determination is what the rolling quads would have called it. And the civil rights leader, Ed Roberts, um, Judy Human, who's um, still doing all kinds of disability work, they would say that independence broadly conceived can contain help in it. So maybe no longer driving, um, but that, that, that life doesn't mean that doesn't have to mean loss. So I think there's like a tech, conversation to have. And then there's this other kind of philosophical conversation to have about how we're going to frame what makes us, what makes life worth living and yeah. what gives us our dignity and what gives us our, you know, getting up, you know, every day. And I, and we, we ask too little of old age in this country, don't you think? Yeah. Say more about that. Well, just like, I think, you know, we imagine that there's sort of work and then your work is your worth and then you stop and you retire and then you what, right? You enjoy your open day or whatever. I think there are, of course, there are plenty of people who participate in helping to raise their grandchildren, but I feel like there's all kinds of extra resources that older adults have that aren't being tapped because there's this idea that they are going to go to, you know, only to live with people who are their same age. There's not nearly enough creativity built around um, mixed age kind of encounters and engagements. I mean, um, one of my favorite projects ever is uh, is called Speaking Exchange, and it's nothing more than matching older adults in a assisted living facility in Chicago with teenagers in Brazil who are looking to practice their English. So wow. here are these, I know, and, and it's it's just a video connection. Like there's nothing really ingenious technologically about it, but the genius of it is seeing paradigmatically what's on offer as a resource, right? So these older adults have all kinds of things to offer in terms of the vernacular of English. And these young people in Brazil are looking for that vernacular, not just the grammar lesson, they're looking for language in use. And so there's a wonderful little film about it. And it's about the relationships that that follow. And that to me is, again, that's designed not only for preserving independence in that narrowly scripted way, what can I do for myself and by myself, but also designing for connection, which we know gives us a desirable life. I mean, it's so bizarre how all of it, tech design for aging 
assumes that preserving independence is the only good when we know we know what what gives us well-being it's actually relationships right so why wouldn't we design also toward those things oh yeah i mean one part of the project which is called um, silver key is that it allows you to build a network of other drivers so that mm. you are not necessarily driving on your own and you can sort of develop these friendships and relationships that can still get you where you want to go without nice. you being behind the wheel so yeah yeah know, it's that community that's right Tell me, tell our listeners about the dementia community in the Netherlands. We, yeah. I will not try to pronounce that. I will let you yeah, do that. That's a hard one. Um, but I, I spent some time in the Netherlands. I do have a little bit of Dutch. It's Hoogewijk. So it's, it looks like Hoogewijk, H-O-G-E-W-E-Y-K. And it's a, um, a dementia village, right? A planned mini city, actually, like a locked facility, if you can imagine this, in Vaisp in the Netherlands, a little town in the Netherlands. It is a, a nursing home, but that actually has storefronts in it and a working restaurant and uh, a gym and a, a hair salon and a theater. And it has streets, actually, uh, paved streets and a big a big plaza. So you go in through you know a double set of locked doors in the way that you would a memory care center uh, that you're thinking of in a clinical setting. But what opens up to you is this little town. And uh, it's just extraordinary that, you know, that here again, it's extraordinary and ordinary that the folks who worked there, you know, something a couple decades ago looked around and thought this, this, the site had been a regular nursing home with like a long bay of rooms, just like you think of uh, in memory care. And they thought if we were right to uh, find ourselves in, with the condition of dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever it is, is this the place where we'd want to live? Right. And the, and the question, the answer was a resounding no. And they thought, okay, well, what are we going to build? Like, what are our principles? What are the, what's the vision for what life could be like for these folks? And the architecture then proceeded from that vision, which was one of the principles was favorable surroundings, but it was the most imaginative interpretation of favorable surroundings that they could come up with. I mean, so when you go there, when you go to live there, you live in a, um, in a, a housing, you know, a kind of apartment with, you know, three or four other adults and you have a working kitchen, including all kinds of kitchen implements. And you go to the operating grocery store there and help to prepare meals insofar as you're able you can also go to the restaurant that's open for lunch and for dinner every day there. And what's interesting about that is that the restaurant is both private and public. So it is semi-porous right. that the, yeah, the public from the town of Vasp can go and have a meal there too. And that talk about an imaginative way of including people who in most cultures have been just absolutely cordoned off, right, to a kind of secure facility as though they're no longer humans – that they tolerate that they build a, this restaurant around the idea that people will be wandering in occasionally and not entirely, um, you know, secure in their grasp of the real, but the waitresses there and the folks who eat there understand that that's part of the part of the bargain. And I saw a mother there with young children who was just modeling a way to be uh, humane and kind uh, with folks who are in a, you know, in a condition of their lives, you know, that has humanity and dignity in it and also has needs in it. So, uh, you know, that is, that is, it's not that it shouldn't be so extraordinary. They have visitors there every day at Hochweg 
asking themselves, could we redesign life for memory care in this way? And remember that memory care is not just about a, a, a difficult relationship to time, but also a, a relationship to space. And so part of why you build the architecture to be the simulacrum of a town is to reassure people with that continuity of the life that they had before. So instead of having one all-purpose room in your nursing home, it's like, no, no, it's really clear. This is where you go for music. This is where you go for the gym. This is where you go to get your haircut. And and the reassurance of that, of feeling that kind of familiarity. And there are bikes, these beautiful side-by-side tandem bikes, because it is the Netherlands where bikes are kind of everything. And so they've just thought of everything in terms of preserving that dignity and that humanity. And it shouldn't be rocket science, honestly, you know, but the idea that design could also be treatment to me was just fascinating. And, um, and, you know, I think in our culture, we rely heavily on medicine, pharmacology, sort of clinical expertise, and we think very little about environments and surroundings. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I guess one of the interesting ethical um, parts of it is that it is a simulacrum, and you're sort yeah. of uh, convincing the the residents that they're living a different kind of reality than they actually yeah. are. That's right. And, and Larissa, Mc, Larissa McFarker did a great piece in The New Yorker about that very conundrum. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, did you feel any sort of uh, ethical um, uncertainty when you were thinking about it or there or writing about it afterwards? Certainly. And I asked um, my tour guide there about that because we encountered a woman who was certain she was on her way to a neighboring town and was clearly confused about that. And my host did not correct her, right? Did not say, no, you're, you know, you're here at Invasp. Um, she, you know, didn't, you know, embellish that this this sort of falsehood that this woman was under, but she also didn't correct her. And I, and I pressed her on this and sort of said like, what about that? What, you know, are you aiding and abetting, you know, a falsehood and are there trade-offs to that? And she said, yeah, it's a complicated issue. It's one of, of lively debate in the field. And again, Larissa McFarker, I think went right toward this in our own country too. There's, you know, the caregiving debate about whether you, um, you know, sort of seal up and, and support people's fictions or whether you insist all the time on reality. You know, it's a it's a thorny bioethics matter. But and, and they are engaged in that too at Hochevig. But I think she, the, you know, they are not there to sort of imagine that the town is somehow a real place. I think they would call it just a preservation of the the recognizable familiarity of life before, which is a truth, right? That that it looks like the kinds of towns that folks in the Netherlands have grown up in, and so it preserves that sense of what they know. And I think to me, that's defensible as as treatment. Yeah. Cool. Um, one of the things I, I really love when you were talking about um, deaf space, you wrote that the the qualities of attention that deaf space practices yeah. as its process of design, yeah. you know, yeah. and I, when I heard that, I thought actually of, of your prose and, and sort of the, the amount of attention you lavish on the language, which I thought was really useful and, and effective um, for me as a reader. And it made me think of the film Lady Bird. Have you seen Lady Bird? I have seen Lady Bird, yeah. Do you remember the moment where Lady Bird is reviewing her college oh, essay yes. with, oh, yes. with, the, with the Dunn? And the Nun yes. says, you write about Sacramento so affectionately. And Lady yeah. Bird says, I was just paying attention. And, and the sister, Sarah Jones, says, don't you think that maybe they're same thing, love and attention? Yes. And I was like, you know what? I want to ask you about that. Would you say a few words about your attention economy and what it means for you to attend to to language, to the world, to to everything? Yeah, what a great question. And I really appreciate it. And I actually think about that all the time. That is attending as a form of love in the sense that 
Right. Uh, you know, design, people think of design as a kind of mode of expertise whereby people are quite concerned with how sleek the lines are and how, um, you know, how dramatic and monumental for, you know, for example, the facade of a building might be. But really, um, design is this way of making material um, out of the index of ideas of that are extant in a culture. So design is this way, if we draw our eyes to it, like what is the material language of the world, right? Like why, why do we care that we have wood, you know, furniture, for example, like what's, what's happening there, right? It's not, it's not purely convention. It's also partly that somehow surrounding ourselves with an organic material. So a, a material from nature does something about rooting us in nature, even when we're in, you know, a kind of very sterile office environment. But the quality of attention means not pointing to that as like, oh, do I know who designed that table? It's like, no, what is what is the actual quality of the line and the color? And would you yeah. call it warm or would you call it cool? You know, and I, in my classroom, I hand students a kind of word bank to try to help build their literacy and their vocabulary for describing what they see. Because I keep saying to them, it's not enough to say, I like it, I don't like it, or that belongs above my pay grade, that's somebody else's expertise, and therefore I'm going to reject it, or I'm, I'm suspicious of it, or I find it, you know, kind of highfalutin and, um, you know, uh, elitist. Instead, just to say, like, what is the quality of the thing and how is it speaking? And if we draw our attention to it and say, what's the, no, what's the real word that we're looking for here? You know, um, is it, is it warm or is it um, approachable? Is it friendly? Is it, you know, like, um, how, how many gradations can we find? To me, that's a way of, um, you know, of, of uh, a form of paying respect, I guess, a form of, of extending um, our own, you know, the kind of lizard brain of our own consciousness, you know, like t- out toward things that are unlike ourselves. Like, to me, you know, I, the, the quality of attention that I wanted to bring in this book was to try to honor the stuff that I've been taught by people who took their time to show me the things that they've built and to let me be in their intimate space with their, you know, mismatched bodies or whatever. But I also find that my hope is that all cultural objects, so design, art, sometimes engineering, and certainly hopefully in books are a bridge between, you know, one consciousness and another. And we say like, like that is our work, right. To extend from our own biases, our own myopia. And to say, if I look closely enough and I ask enough questions and I ask you, did I get it right? Did I get it right? Did I get it right? Then might we find that connection that, that talk about a desirable life. Like that's what makes it worth doing, you know? Um, And I, I, you know, my hope too, is that by paying attention, we get better language, meaning non-jargony, non-expert, non-technical language, right? But just language that is ready to hand, you know, for the things in our lives. No, I mean that's that's the ethos of the uh, of the, the literary world. It's not the yeah. design world, and I've read lots of design books, and believe me, it, it, <laughs> there's a qualitative difference between what you've produced and what I uh, see elsewhere. So thank you for that. Thank I you. appreciate you paying attention. Okay, something very personal and very quick. My yeah. back has recently started to hurt me. Mm. And I realized that probably it's because I spent the last six months reading on my couch and typing on my couch. And before that, I would get 10,000 steps a day when I went into the office. Yeah. And your book said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe my body is is creating a misfit between myself and the couch here and my back. And so I pulled out a box out of the basement and turned it into a standing desk, which I'm talking to you 
from right now. Oh my goodness. Has this experience been re- I, I read and I'm doing it now. I'm thinking I can't be the only person who's reading your book and saying, you know what, maybe I need to apply a little bit of this to my own life. Yeah, certainly people are asking that. I just got an email from my sister-in-law yesterday who was looking at, speaking of boxes, she was asking me about um, the the cardboard furniture adaptations I profile in the book, the Adaptive Design Association that builds furniture out of cardboard. Yeah, but if you look at Cherigami, Cherigami builds, they got trained by the adaptive design folks and they build desk toppers and standing desks and temporary furniture of all kinds. And I have my own desk topper out of cardboard, um, reasonably priced also. So people should take a look at that. But I also (laughs) like my 10 year old this morning is on a tippy stool. So instead of a stool that's got a flat bottom, it's got a little rounded bottom. So, and that's actually a lot of physical therapists, he's neurotypical and finds school pretty easy, but he's going to be spending a lot of time on that chair, right? Trying to do school remotely. So that little tippy stool, just that rounded bottom underneath allows him to shift his weight between his legs. And it's actually much healthier. The, the ergonomics folks of the world and the PTs of the world would say for all of us, that movement is actually more natural for us in a seated position. And so, right. It feels like your couch is comfy, but actually it's probably working at cross purposes. I think you're right. Now, let's talk. Let's talk about probably the most important question I have I have for you, which is about your son Graham, who you yeah. included in the book, and I felt like it was the motor behind all of this. And yeah. I, I would you mind sharing that story um, yeah, with our sure. listeners so they could understand the sort of the, your your impetus here? Yeah. So um, for listeners, I, I I'd say just in bookends, a tiny bit in the beginning, and then and then at the back in the last chapter about my own uh, experience with disability. Most of it is about other folks and kind of touring around the world, looking at in people's living rooms and labs and so on. But I do, you're absolutely right that the engine of the book and the insight is my experience. I'm a mother of three children, but my eldest has Down syndrome. His name is Graham and he's 14 now. And, and I have uh, a couple of nieces on the autism spectrum and, um, family members with chronic depression. So I'm familiar with kind of misfitting in the world for sure. And you're right that that Graham's life and and his deep creativity and his many, many gifts, which I would never be able to describe as as diminishments, right? So that that all of those, all that insight is the engine of the work. I mean, I, in fact, going back to graduate school, you know, is a result of this person coming into my life. And um, again, you know, Graham's life and his genetic status is rendered entirely as a risk and a defect, you know, but it, he's a, he's a, a, a human replete with human qualities. So, um, I, you know, I did want to find a way to let the reader know that I had skin in that game and also to, to speak to parents as one kind of audience, because I know a lot of parents write to me when their kids are getting a new diagnosis or when their kids are struggling or newly struggling with anxiety or something else. And they're trying mm-hmm. to ask themselves the question that my husband and I are always asking, which is, what, you know, shall we help our child um, support him adapting his own body and his way of being to the world? Or shall we ask the world to move a little bit more toward him? And neither of those things is exclusive. You know, we have to do a little bit of both, all of us in our own bodies and then among the people that we love. But uh, he's in the end of the book in the clock chapter because, you know, developmental disability is, is, a, is an area that prosthetics don't really reach. I mean, there's some really smart stuff with software and, you know, we had plenty of very clever eyeglasses and ankle prosthesis, you know, and ankle prosthetics and and sort of gear and hardware. But mostly the misfit for somebody like Graham with non-normative intelligence, the misfit is actually between his capacity to be an economic productive citizen, 
you know, a 40 hour a week, you know, right. kind of salaried employee and, um, and, and what it is that he's actually good at. And so for that, you need, you know, that's, those are the questions that I'm, I'm asking now, which is how do you build some social structures with some flexibility in them um, that probably exceed the bounds of design altogether, right? That is to say, how do you, how do you uh, shore up an idea of human worth that, that doesn't resist, you know, rest on a kind of economic category? I don't think any of us want to be valued purely for our economic productivity. So what's right. the, what's the, language and the resources we'd reach for to, to reestablish those grounds. That's what I'm wondering. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I have so many more questions uh, to ask you, but I, I have taken enough of your time and I thank you again, Sarah, for visiting us um, today. And thank you. Those were such good questions and I, I love talking to you. Thanks so much. EPAM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we are very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Sarah Hendren, we need more voices like yours. Thank you again for joining us today. All of the thoughtful questions came from our producer, Ken Gordon, Kit Palalos is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Kyle Wing, asking you to please vote. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.